The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. John in chapter 8 and verse 28. The 28th verse in the 8th chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. Then said Jesus unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. Then said Jesus unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. Here we are still continuing our consideration of these extraordinary people, these Pharisees and other Jews, who reacted in such an unforeseen and such a strange manner to our Lord and Saviour when he spoke the words recorded in the twelfth verse of this chapter. Because there, you remember, he stood up in the temple and said, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. I say again that nothing more glorious, more wonderful has ever been uttered to a gathering of men and women. What is needed by everybody in the world and has always been needed above everything else is light. The light of knowledge, the light of understanding, the light of truth, the light of holiness. The world is in darkness. The world is a dark place. And here he stands before them and offers them of everything that very light that they stand most in need of. And yet you remember we've been seeing that the reaction of these people to him was that they attacked him, questioned him, tried to trip him and to trap him. The Pharisees therefore said unto him, Thou bearest record of thyself, thy record is not true. And they continued thus to question and to cross-examine him and to oppose him in every conceivable way. And this strange and extraordinary phenomenon, I say, is the one that is still confronting us in the world. That is the supreme tragedy in the world tonight. It is the failure and the refusal of men to recognize and to believe in and to follow the Son of God, the Savior of the world. What is the cause of this? That's what's engaging us. And we are engaged in it not because it's an interesting theme. It is, of course, from the mere standpoint of intellect and the employment of reason and of logic. There's nothing which is comparable to an analysis of a statement, a passage like this in the scripture. But God knows we are not met together to do that. The world is in too desperate a condition for any of us to be theoretical. We can't afford just to sit down and to look on and to be interested and have a debate and an argument and a discussion. That's like Nero fiddling while Rome is burning. And that's what so many are doing today, but we are not met together to do that. We are here considering this for this reason. That the consequences of this rejection of the Son of God are so terrible. Look at it as you see it in these people. Here is one who tells them, I say, not that he's come to blast them or to destroy them, but to save them, to give them light, to lead them out into truth, 
to victory and to joy. And yet they hate him and turn against him. What makes them do it? Well, we've been considering the causes. We see their whole spirit is one. We've seen that their whole mode of thinking is one. Their thinking, he says, in an earthly, in a carnal manner. Earthly thoughts. And we've seen that they were tragically ignorant of the truth about themselves and about their whole relationship to him. But then last Sunday night we took up another section, a different point. We saw that in many ways we can say that these people reacted like this and rejected the Son of God because they were ignorant of the consequences of doing that. And that shows itself here in two main respects. We dealt with one of them last Sunday night. It was this, you remember. He said to them, if you go on refusing me and rejecting me like this, he says in verse 24, I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins. For if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. That is a terrible thing. As I think everybody who was here last Sunday night will agree. Nothing is more important about a man and his life in this world than the way in which he dies. And we've all got to remember and there are only two ways of dying, we saw. You either die in your sins or else you die in the Lord. But mankind doesn't know anything about that. It's not interested. Regards that as being morbid. Shouldn't consider it, they say. They're not interested, but they will be. Because I say it's inevitable and unavoidable. And our Lord just tells them plainly, repeats it, you remember, twice over, so that he says it altogether three times, that he says, if you don't believe in me, you shall die in your sins. And there is nothing more terrible than that, than to die in our sins just as we are, and to go on for all eternity just like that. Terrible. Appalling. But that's not the only thing, he says, that they're not aware of in this realm of consequences and of results. They're equally ignorant of something else. Well, what is that? Well, he says it is this. They're equally ignorant concerning his death. Ignorant of their own death and their own way of dying. Ignorant of his death and his way of dying and what his death means. This is extraordinary. He says, you are rejecting me. You don't know the consequences. The consequences will be terrible in the matter of your own death. And then there will be other consequences as the result of my death. Now that's the matter that he is dealing with in this 28th verse that we are looking at together this evening. Here you see he seems to be gathering it all up. And he puts it in this way. Now there are just two terms here that we must be clear about. Because if we are not clear about them, we cannot possibly understand the message. He says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, what does that mean? Well, it's primarily, of course, a reference to his death. You remember that away back in chapter 3, in verse 14, he said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Lifted up, crucified raised on a tree and nailed to it. That's it. It's a reference to his death by crucifixion. 
You've heard the same, you saw the same thing in the reading at the beginning in chapter 12 in verse 32. And I, he said, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. And then John goes on to explain that he was thus speaking of the manner of his death. Death by crucifixion. Raised up, nailed to a tree. His death and all that follows it. That's what he means by the term lifting up. But then the other expression that we must glance at is this. He says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall you know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. Now, what does he mean by this? Well, on the surface, it seems to say this, doesn't it? He's saying, well, you don't believe in me now, but after you've crucified me and killed me, and after I've died, then... You're all going to see the truth about me and you're all going to believe it. But of course it cannot mean that for a moment. Because the history itself tells us that many of these Jews didn't believe in him after his death. Nor even after his resurrection. They went on disbelieving and rejecting him and turning against him. So it cannot mean that he is saying here that all these people who now rejected him after his death would come to believe in him. It's impossible that it means that. Well then what does it mean? Well, I suggest that it means something like this, that we can look at this in three different ways. One thing he is very definitely saying, it seems to me, is that some of them really will come to believe in him in that way, because we are told that that did actually happen. They didn't all of them, but some of them did. So it includes that meaning that some of them will come to believe after his death and resurrection, not now, but then. There are many instances of that. We get them in the book of the Acts of the Apostles. So that that's a part of the meaning. But I don't think it's the chief meaning here. I suggest to you that the chief meaning here is this. That he's saying in this striking manner, you don't believe in me now, and I can't prove it to you. I'm standing before you as it were as but a man, and it's simply a question of my word. But you know, he says, when you have killed me, when I've been crucified, after you have done away with me, as it were, in the way that you're going to do it, then the truth concerning me is going to be made clear. It's going to be manifested. I believe that's the main meaning. But there is a third meaning, and I'm equally certain of this. He is actually saying that a day will come when every single one of them would see and know the truth concerning him. Now mark what I say, and as I put it. Then said Jesus unto them, after you have lifted up the Son of Man, the when can be translated like that, after you have lifted up the Son of Man, he doesn't measure the distance of time in this word after, but sometime after you've put me to death by crucifixion, sometime after, you shall know that I am indeed the one whom I claim to be, the one of whom I have been speaking. You shall know that I am he. Every one of you, all of you have rejected me. You shall know it. I think that is the third and the ultimate meaning. Very well then, having defined our terms, 
Let us come and look at the message. What is he saying here? Well, the first thing he says, and it's a very striking one, isn't it? He's telling them that they are going to kill him and to put him to death by crucifixion. I don't want to stay with this this evening, but we can't slide over it because it's such an astounding statement. Here is this man, apparently just an ordinary man, and yet he stands there and he looks at these people who are thus arguing with him and debating with him, and he says, I know all about you. I know what's in your heart. They may not have even thought of it fully at this time, but he knew it. He knew what was coming. He knew why he'd come into this world. And so he just tells them, he announces to them that they themselves are going to kill him. They're going to crucify him. That's the way in which they're going to put him to death. It wasn't the Jewish way. That was stoning. But he knew that they were going to hand him over to the Romans, and their method was crucifixion. It's a remarkable prophecy. Oh, I'm just emphasizing it in passing for this reason. If you're in trouble about believing in this person, my dear friend, read your Gospels again. Watch every statement. What you've got to explain, you see, is how this man, whom you think is just a man, how he knew all this, how he was able to prophesy all this so accurately, how he was able to tell them the way they were going to do it, that they themselves were not going to do it directly, but they'd hand him over and get the Romans in authority to do it for them, and thus he would be killed and die by crucifixion. And so, you see how the... 22nd Psalm was fulfilled, which is an amazingly detailed description of a slow death by crucifixion. Thus, you see, even the prophet, centuries before, in the Psalms, was able to see the mode of the death of the Son of God, and you get this extraordinary phenomenon of the fulfillment and verification of Scripture. Note that in passing. But then note this other thing that he tells them. He says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, why does he describe himself like that? What does he mean by that? It's a very significant statement. You see, our Lord, in everything he said to these people, was talking about himself and giving a revelation concerning himself. They don't follow him, doesn't matter. He's telling them. And if they'd but had the sense to be humble and childlike and say, we don't understand, will you help us? Will you give us further elucidation? Oh, he would have been delighted to do so, but they never did, you see. Standing back in their supposed knowledge, they just question him and try to get him down. And so they remain in darkness. But he's telling them. He says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man. What's he mean by this? Well, you had the answer in that portion we read out of the seventh chapter of the prophecy of Daniel at the beginning. It's all there in that thirteenth verse. He used the term deliberately. Do you remember what we had there? Well, there was a great description, you see, a prophecy of the future. Daniel is given this vision of the future, and what does he see? Well, he sees these beasts rising. They represent different nations, different powers, the Chaldeans, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, and so on. They're represented by these animals. Then this terrible animal that came, the Roman Empire and power, and there's great devastation. This animal that destroyed with his teeth, teeth of iron, Roman Empire. And the whole picture is one of confusion. But suddenly Daniel was given a vision of God in his everlasting glory, the Ancient of Days. The creator and the owner of the universe. And suddenly there appears before him one like the Son of Man. And you remember what we are told about him. Here is the deliverer. 
Here is one who is going to establish a kingdom amongst all those other kingdoms which is going to last forever. A kingdom to which there will be no end. Here is one like the Son of Man, no longer like your beasts, altogether different. Not an earthly power, not an earthly king, one like unto the Son of Man. He suddenly comes. Here is the victor. Here is the one who is going to solve the problem. And he's going to set up a kingdom that will be everlasting and indestructible. And he will reign over all forever and ever. Who is this son of man? Well, here is the Messiah, the promised Messiah. Now here he's telling them that. He says, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you shall know that I am he. Who? Well, the Messiah. The two terms mean the same thing. He's identifying himself with the son of man in the vision of Daniel. He's saying, I am the long-awaited deliverer. I am your Messiah. I am the one that the prophets have looked forward to. You don't know it, but you're going to crucify your own Messiah. That's the final crime, the final folly. He's telling them then. When ye have lifted up the Son of Men, then shall ye know that I am He. Well, this is a tremendous statement. What is he saying? Well, he is the son of man. Not a son of man. He appeared to be a son of man. He just looked at a man like every other man. He doesn't say, I am a son of man. He says, I am the son of man. What's it mean? Well, it tells us the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a man. Jesus of Nazareth, born of the Virgin, certainly. A man. Ah, yes, but not just a man. The son of man. Man, but more than man. The man, Son of God, God the Son come down into the world out of the glory, born of a woman, taking human nature unto himself. Man, yes, but more, the Son of Man, second Adam, second man, brother, last Adam, the Son of Man. The only hope for man, the representative of man, the new humanity, the son of man. That's what he's saying. That's who he is, and he says that they, in their ignorance, are going to crucify and kill their long-awaited Messiah, the one who was to come. He says, you're going to kill me. Why? Well, because you don't understand. They don't believe all this. They don't understand all this. In other words, he shows them here that they are fatally wrong about him and his death in two main respects. Let me just hold them before you briefly. Here is the first. He is telling them that they are wrong in thinking that his death will be the end of him and of all his claims. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, well, you'll think that then you got rid of me. I'm a nuisance to you. I'm not a Pharisee, but here I am talking about the law and expounding it and you don't like it. And you're beginning to think in your hearts, we must get rid of this man. And then your next step will be to say, if only we get rid of him, then we'll have some peace again. This man's a nuisance, he's an annoyance, he's a disturbance. So when you have lifted up the Son of Man, you will say to yourselves, well now, this is all right, we've got rid of him, that's the end of that imposter. Others he saved, himself he can't save. Thou Son of God, come down from the cross, if thou art the Son of God, why not save yourself? Come down. One of the thieves crucified with him, you remember? Cast that very self-same thing into his teeth. And they all mocked and jeered and the crowd was much amused. 
Here is one who claims that he's son of God and that he is Messiah. Look at him, dying in utter weakness. Marvelous. That's the end of him and all his claims and all his boasting and all his blasphemy. That's what they thought. They thought, I say, that when they'd put him to death upon the cross, that it was the end of him and the end of all his claims. It's not surprising that he looked upon them and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He meant it in one sense, but it's true in this sense also. He is telling them here. He says, you think that when you kill me, you finish me. You have no idea what you're doing. You'll be lifting me up on a pole, yes, but you'll be doing more. In putting me to death, what are you doing? You're just elevating me back to my everlasting glory and the throne of my Father. That's implied here. But they knew nothing about that. They had no conception as to what his death would lead to. As I'm reminding you, they thought that his death would just be the end of him and all the end of these claims that he was making. But here he's telling them. He says, do you know what my death's going to do? Once you've lifted up the Son of Man, then all these truths concerning me are going to be manifested. What are they? Well, his death, you see, immediately provided proofs as to who he is. He says so. Then shall it be made known as to who I am and that I am he, that I am the Son of Man. How does his death lead to that? Well, let me remind you very simply. There was something very extraordinary about his death. The moment he died, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. That had never happened before. Who is this man? Who is this man they're getting rid of? Well, there's something strange about him. When he dies... The sun was darkened for three hours. And the veil of the temple was rent. And afterwards the graves opened and some of the people emerged out of the graves. Strange things. The centurion looking on said, what's this? Who is this? Truly this was the son of God. What men couldn't see in his life, they began to see in his death. There were manifestations indicating as to who he was and the significance of his dying, but that's not the main evidence. Of course, the main evidence is this. There is nothing that so proves his claims and the truth of everything that he has put forward concerning himself as that mighty event that followed his death. They kill him and they say, that's the end. Take down the body, put it in a grave. Now they say, we must be careful. There will be rumors about this man. His followers will obviously concoct some stories. So they went to Pilate and got authority. They said, look here, we want a seal set on that grave and we want you to appoint soldiers to God. And they did all that. Read the account yourself at the end of chapter 27 and the beginning of chapter 28 of Matthew's Gospel. They said, this imposter is quite likely to put suggestions into the minds of his followers and they'll be very ready to put them into practice. Very well, they said, make absolutely certain. Roll over a stone, seal it, put the guard. And they did it all. But you remember that they didn't achieve their end and object because the stone was rolled away and his body disappeared from the grave. No one knew it, no one understood it. What's this? Well, this is resurrection. 
And this is the mightiest proof and demonstration of the fact that he is the Son of God, the Son of Man that he claims to be. This he, this prophet, this deliverer, this Messiah that all the prophets had looked forward to. He will be demonstrated to be such by the resurrection. Well, I mustn't keep you, let me give you the evidence. You know, it was the resurrection of Jesus Christ that finally convinced the disciples, the apostles themselves. Don't you remember how heartbroken and crestfallen they were after his death? They said, we don't understand it. Look at his power in healing diseases and raising the dead, but he's died in apparent weakness. They were utterly doubtful. Look at two of them going on the road to Emmaus and saying, we had thought that it was he that should have brought us deliverance and established the kingdom. We had thought so, but it's hopeless. They were all disconsolate, Peter and the rest. Do you remember Peter inviting some of them to go out fishing with him, not knowing what to do with himself, utterly downcast. Then suddenly they see him standing on the shore in the morning. It is the Lord. That's how they were convinced themselves, even his own disciples. Leave alone these other people. The resurrection proclaimed it. Do you remember the story of Thomas? Even when he's told by the others, Thomas cannot believe it's true until the Lord comes into the room and says to Thomas, come along, Thomas. Put your finger in the marks of the nails and thrust your hand into my side. And don't be unbelieving, but believing. And he falls at his feet saying, my Lord and my God. It is his death that does this, you see. Yes, they were almost believing it before. His words were wonderful, his miracles, but they were not enough. It was the resurrection following the death that really did it. He said it would, and it did. And so the Apostle Paul reminds the Romans, you remember, at the beginning of his great epistle, that he was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, but declared to be the Son of God according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. The proclamation is in the resurrection that he is Son of God. He is the first to rise from the dead. You, he's telling these Jews, I think that you're finishing me. That's the end of me and all my claims. You know what you're doing? You're going to prove that I am he. It's via the grave, the cross and the grave, that I'm going to be declared to be the Son of God, that I am he. Resurrection. But there was something that even followed the resurrection that helped to prove it. What was that? The day of Pentecost at Jerusalem. Right away through the Old Testament, God had promised that when the Messiah came, he would pour out his Spirit upon all flesh. It's seen most clearly in the prophecy of Joel in chapter 2, but it's there in others. It's there in Isaiah, it's there in Ezekiel, they've all got it in some shape or form. How shall we know when the Messiah has come? Oh, then I will pour out of my Spirit upon all flesh. Your servants, your handmaidens, your old men, your young men, everybody, not an occasional man as now, there will be a profusion, a pouring forth, a shedding forth of my spirit. And uh, he himself had promised the same thing. 
He had told his followers, he said, it is expedient for you that I go away, for if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I go away, I will send him unto you. He says, I'm not going to leave you orphans. I'm not going to leave you alone. I'll send you another Comforter. He, when he comes, when the Spirit is come, he shall convince the world of sin and righteousness and of judgment. What a specific promise. He's putting his whole case into that one thing. He says, if I am the Messiah, what's going to happen? But not until I die. But when I die, I will send him. And on the day of Pentecost, he did send him. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall it be known. And it was known on the day of Pentecost. The promise of the Father has arrived. The thing that God said he was going to do through his chosen servant has taken place. Here is another proclamation that he is the Son of God. I am he. Spirit poured out upon the church. So, you see, he is telling them that far from putting an end to him and his claims, by killing him upon the cross, they'd be doing the exact opposite. They would be supplying proofs that he is the Son of God. But let me give it to you in another way. He is telling them that not only will they supply the proofs in that way, but they will also release the power that he came to give. Power. What do I mean? Well, it's a further proof of who he is. Power to forgive sins. How has that power been released? He was here talking about it. He had power to forgive sins himself while he was in this world, yes, but you know, it wasn't during his life that this great power of his to forgive sins was manifested. That was only made manifest after he died upon the cross. He had already told them, I've reminded you in John 3.14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Mankind, he says, is suffering from this terrible disease called sin, even as those Children of Israel in the wilderness were suffering from the snake poison. They were being bitten by snakes and they were dying here and there and everywhere. And what was the cure? God said to Moses, take a brazen serpent, put it on a pole, hold it up. Tell them to look and one look will heal them. You know, says this person, I am the son of man. And what have I come into the world for? To heal mankind of sin. To take out the poison. To save them from death and destruction. I'm the one that's going to save them by being put up on a pole. Even so, must the Son of Man be lifted up. And you know, my dear friends, you and I would not know forgiveness of sins tonight and nobody would ever have been forgiven. Were it not that this person was crucified on a tree on a hill called Calvary? What was he doing there? Well, says Paul to the Romans again in chapter 3, verse 25. He is setting him forth as a propitiation for our sins. Deliverance in his blood, that he may be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. What was God doing on Calvary? He was setting him forth as the propitiation. Do you know, says our Lord to these men, you think that by putting me to death you are refuting my claims that I am the Messiah, that I am he. I say that I've come to deliver, I've come to save. And you say this is nonsense and blasphemy and you're going to kill me because of that. But you know, he says, the effect of your killing me will be this. You'll prove that I am. 
It's my blood that you're going to shed that's going to heal you. Here is forgiveness of sins. The power of forgiveness is going to be released through your act. You don't understand it, but that is God's way. That's what he's saying. And not only the power to forgive sins, but the power to give life, the power that was released, I say again, at Pentecost. All the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, all the renewing, all the strength and the might that he gives, here it comes from this blessed person. There is nothing in any Christian but that he receives it from Christ. We beheld his glory, says John in the very first chapter in verse 14 and 16. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Yes, not only that, but we have received of his fullness and grace upon grace. This power, he couldn't give it them while he was with them. And that's why they remained doubting even his own believers. Look at these men before Pentecost. Look at them after Pentecost. What a transformation. What is it? Oh, he's come into them now, as it were. He's entered in fullness by the Spirit. And here they are filled with might and authority and power. What a transformation. How did it come about? Well, it was by his death. These men, he tells them, by killing him, are just going to be releasing his power. The power that was released at Pentecost. And you see our Lord had prophesied this again. He had told his disciples, you'll find it in the 14th chapter of this gospel, that after he had gone, that they would not only do the works that he was doing, but that they would do greater works than these, because I am with the Father, he said. And you know, after Pentecost it began to happen. There were many more turning to God after Pentecost than even during his own ministry. There do not appear to be many conversions while he was here. He was but a man, as it were, and they didn't believe. They rejected him. But after Pentecost and the power, the masses, 3,000 on one day, and others followed, what is this? Oh, it's a verification of his claim. The power has been released. Greater works than these shall you do, because I go unto my Father. And then take that claim which he makes in this twelfth chapter of this Gospel of John, in verse 32. And I, he said, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. What a claim. He was thought of as the Jewish Messiah. He says, I'm not only Jewish, I'm going to draw all nations unto me. You remember the incident arose when those Greeks came along and said, Sir, we would see Jesus. And the reply he gave when he was asked to see them was this, he said, No, not now. Not now. But after I have been lifted up, after I'm crucified and died then, I will draw all men unto me. While he was here in the flesh, he appeared to be the Jewish Messiah, and that alone. He throws out his hints that he's the Savior of the world, that he is the bread of life, and that he's the light of the whole world. Men couldn't take it. They couldn't follow it. Oh, but after his death, after his resurrection, after Pentecost, do you remember what began to happen? Read your book of the Acts of the Apostles. They started in Jerusalem, as he said, then Samaria, then into the uttermost parts of the earth. 
The gospel spreads. Gentiles are saved. The nations come in. All men, all nations, he means, representatives of all nations, will come unto me. I will draw them unto myself. I will prove that I am the saviour of the world. He couldn't do it while he was here in the flesh. But after his death and resurrection and after Pentecost, he did do it. And that's what he's telling these men. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then it shall be known that I am he, that I am the Son of Man, that I am the Messiah and the Deliverer. Now that's the first point he's making. These people, he says, are tragically ignorant about his death. They think that his death is the end of him and the end of all his claims. He is telling them that it's going to work out in the exact opposite way. That it is via his death that all his claims are going to be proved. And they were. But look for a moment at the second point. The second error was that they thought that his death would be the end of their relationship to him. Who is this fellow, they say? Who is this man that arrogates to himself such great powers and makes such stupendous claims? This carpenter, this fellow, this non-entity, who is he? And they got so annoyed, they said, away with him. Let's get rid of him. They concocted a plot. They uttered their lies. They had no charge. There was nothing they could prove. But they lied and they encompassed his death. And they felt that if only they could thus get rid of him, well, it would not only be the end of him, but still more important from their standpoint, it would be the end of their association with him. It would be the end of their relationship to him. If only they killed him, they'd have no longer any trouble with him. He wouldn't be able to affect them or to annoy them or to do anything to them any longer, not for another single moment. But you know, he tells them, you're this tremendous thing. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, after that some time, you shall know that I am he. You don't finish with me, he says, when you crucify me. What's going to happen? Well, what's going to happen is this. He says, you shall know. How are they going to know? Well, listen to him putting the same thing in a slightly different manner as you find it recorded in the Gospel according to St. Matthew in chapter 26 and in verse 64. Listen to this. Here is our Lord speaking to the chief priest of the Jews, a man called Caiaphas. They said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? But Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Then listen. Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said. Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter shall you see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power. In other words, on the right hand of God. And that is what he is telling them at this particular point. 
He is telling these Jews, you don't believe in me now, and you think that by putting me to death, well, that you're finishing with me, and that you'll have no longer any trouble with me. But you know, he said, a day is coming when you shall see me seated at the right hand of glory and of God's power. I've come from God, I'm going back to him. There's a vacant seat on the right hand of God, it belongs to me as his son. I've left it in order to come into this world to save people like you. And you don't believe me and you're rejecting me. And you think you're finishing your association, but you're not. You'll see me there. Thou shalt see me. Seated at the right hand of power, I'll be there. You're simply elevating me to the glory. You're translating me back to where I've come from. When you're lifting me up, you're not finishing. You're putting me back there. You're sending me back to the glory out of which I've emerged. And so, you see, he says the same thing to his disciples. After his resurrection, he tells them that he's sending them out to preach the gospel. He says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. How can he say that? Well, this is what he says before it. Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. That's the result of his crucifixion. His powers on earth were limited. He simply spoke what his father told him to speak. The works I do, he says, they're not of myself, they're the works that my father has given me. But the moment they crucify him, what are they doing? Elevating him back to the glory. God handing it all over to him. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. You Jews, he says, you don't realize what you're doing. You don't end with me, you don't finish with me when you kill me. You're sending me back to power illimitable, to glory everlasting. That's what you're doing. And you know he'd manifested it to them fairly soon. Do you remember what happened in A.D. 70? Less than 40 years after his crucifixion. Well, what happened was this. The Roman armies and legionaries surrounded the city of Jerusalem. There was a terrible war such as had never been seen. Suffering, panic, pestilence, famine, and these horrible troops. And the city of Jerusalem being threatened. And the Jews at last in terror awaken and they look for a Messiah and they cry to God, why don't you send the Messiah? Why don't you send the one you've promised to send to deliver us? He told them all about that here, didn't he? He told them, you remember in this very section we are considering. He said, you shall seek me. You shall seek me and die in your sin. You won't be able to find me. They turned to God and I say they pleaded with him. Oh, why don't you send the Messiah to deliver us from these Roman armies and save our city? Send the Messiah. And you know the answer? He'd already been sent, but they'd killed him and had crucified him. He'd been amongst them. He'd been in their city of Jerusalem. He'd spoken to them in their own temple. He'd offered himself. He said, believe, follow, I'll deliver you. You'll no longer be in darkness. I'll give you the light of life. He's come. But they didn't believe him. They rejected him. And therefore, when they crucify him, they think they're finishing, but they're not. Why did that happen in A.D. 70? Oh, I can tell you why. Why was the city of Jerusalem destroyed and reduced to a mass of rubble? Why was the Jewish nation cast out of its ancestral home and thrown out amongst the nations where it remains until tonight? Why? There's only one answer. It was as punishment for their rejection of their own Messiah. 
They had been told that it would happen and it did happen. So that in killing him they're bringing the day of judgment nearer. They think they're finishing with him. They're not. They're bringing judgment down upon their heads. It came in AD 70 and it has abided upon them ever since as a nation. But that isn't the end. These are but passing adumbrations of something that is going to happen. What is that? Well, it is the thing again which our Lord himself said to that unbelieving Caiaphas. Listen. Jesus said unto him, Thou hast said, Nevertheless I say unto you, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And that is something that everybody is going to see. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, he says, Then shall you know. When? Then. When he will come on the clouds of heaven, surrounded by his holy angels, coming, coming what for? Coming to judgment. Listen to the revelation of John chapter 1 verse 7. Behold, he cometh with clouds. And every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Every eye shall see him when he so comes. He cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. Yea, and they also which pierced these Jews who rejected him, didn't believe in him, they'll see him in all his infinite glory and majesty and his transcendent personality. Every eye that has ever opened in this world shall see him, finish with him. You're only beginning with him when you reject him. And though you crucify him, you're not finishing with him. You're elevating him to the glory, to the majesty, and he'll come to judge, and every eye shall see him. Not one shall escape. But listen to this again in Revelation 6, 14 and following. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us. Why? Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come. And who shall be able to stand it? That's what he was telling these Jews when you have lifted up the Son of Man after you have done so. You shall know. That's going to lead to the knowledge. How is it going to lead? Well, that's the ultimate. That's the end of it all. You shall know. That I am he. 
You can reject the Son of God, but my dear friend, you don't finish with him. Every eye shall see him, yea, and they also which pierced him. Kings, princes, great men, captains, bondmen, free men, all men. The whole world will see him, this Son of Man, Son of God, not just somebody. Have you forgotten that you're alive in the 20th century? Have you forgotten that this is 1960? You're trying to frighten us. You're trying to alarm us. My dear friend, I tell you before God that I'm not trying to frighten you at all. I'm simply telling you the facts. These people listening to our Lord didn't believe him. They regarded it as rubbish and nonsense. That's what they said. And it was because of that that they plotted together to kill him and finally did kill him. They said, this is preposterous. This is nonsense. This is quite ridiculous. If only we kill him, we'll get rid of him. That's the end. And they did that, but it wasn't the end. And that's why we are here tonight. He had told them that his death would be followed by resurrection. They didn't believe it. They scouted it. That that would be followed by ascension. Nonsense. That he'd be seated at the right hand of God's glory and power. Far from listening to him and believing and falling down and asking for forgiveness. Away with him, they said. This is blasphemy. But you know, it all happened. And it is he himself who has said, not I. That everybody shall see him seated at the right hand of power. That every eye shall see him when he comes on the clouds of heaven to judge the world in righteousness. To consign all who've rejected him to torment and hell and suffering. To set up his everlasting kingdom. To invite his people into it. And to enjoy eternity with him. He said it. It isn't I. If you believe in him at all, you believe everything he said. It was he who said this. After you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you shall know. And my dear friend, I want to leave you with this thought this evening. You are going to see the Son of God. You can do nothing about avoiding it. Every eye shall see him. And one glimpse of him will be enough to tell you that he is the Son of God and the Son of Man. You'll see his glory, his majesty. You'll see him riding on the clouds. You'll see the holy angels. You'll see a glimpse of his king. You'll, see, you'll know there'll be no argument. There'll be no disputation. And if you didn't believe in him when you were in this world, it'll be the most terrible sight you've ever seen. Because then you'll see that you were guilty of the most terrible and tragic blunder that a man can ever be guilty of. You rejected your Savior. You rejected the Messiah. You've excluded yourself from the everlasting kingdom. You shall see them coming, as he said himself, from the north and the south and the east and the west, and sitting down in the kingdom of God with Abram and Isaac and Jacob and you yourselves. Shut out! And shut out forever in torment and misery while they are enjoying the blessings and the glories of the kingdom. 
My dear friend, to reject Jesus Christ and his gospel and his offer, to refuse to run to him and to follow him and to walk in the light of his glory which he has to give you is nothing but sheer madness. You can go out of this service tonight infuriated, thinking that I'm mad and that I'm just trying to frighten you and that this is utter stuff and nonsense, which it's insulting to preach to people in 1960. Say what you will, my friend. If you say that, you're simply repeating what these people said. And it'll make no difference to the facts. He has risen from the dead. He has ascended. He has sent his spirit. He's proved his words. And what yet remains is equally certain. Every one of us is going to see the Lord Jesus Christ. And that sight will be the most awful, terrifying, alarming sight that we've ever had. The wrath of the Lamb. Or else, it will be the most glorious experience that we've ever known. We shall see him as he is, the one on whom we've believed. And we shall immediately be changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye, at the sound of the trump, we shall be transfigured and transformed, glorified even in body. We shall be like him. And we shall spend our eternity in his glorious presence. We saw last Sunday night that there are only two ways of dying. We see tonight that there are only two ways of seeing him. Awful, unbelievable, indescribable, or else glorious, wonderful. Oh, I plead with you, look at him tonight. As he is here offering himself to you, as the light of the world, though you've sinned and your sins be as scarlet, come to him. Though you've rejected him and scuffed him at him all your life and sinned against him and gone your own way, Oh, I plead with you, come and look at him tonight. See him fall at his feet. Give yourself to him. Rise up and follow him. He won't refuse you. His heart is full of love. He's son of man. He's Messiah. He's deliverer. The son of man, he says, has come to seek and to save that which is lost. He came and died for you. There's nothing he won't do for you. Come to him ere it be too late. And then you'll be able to look forward to the day of his coming as your own crowning day, the most glorious and wonderful day that will ever have dawned in your experience. You don't finish with the Lord Jesus Christ when you say, I don't believe in him. Don't bother me anymore. I finished with him. You can't finish with him. All power is given unto him. The universe belongs to him. He is its judge and he will come again and judge it. In righteousness, make your peace with him. Kiss the sun, lest he smite you. Make peace with him now, while there is an opportunity, while he is ready to receive you. Repent, believe, be saved, and be made safe. Amen.